Hey guys, you are listening to Killer Cocktails, where the drinks are stiff, but the bodies are stiffer. This is a casual true crime podcast where two friends get drunk and talk about gruesome murders. Each week we pick a different drink whose name or ingredients set the tone for our stories. Hey guys, it's Drea. This is Jackie. And we're back for another week of murder. Killer cocktails coming Kill- at you. Okay, so this week we are doing a listener cocktail. Yep. Uh, 30 Roses from Instagram is super awesome. She's been with us from the beginning. Um, Super fun, super sweet. For she sure. took us to the Grammys. That's right. Yeah, well, she took her sticker to the Grammys, but it was like we us. Went. It was like a little piece of my heart. Um, But yeah, she recently went to one of her favorite restaurant haunts called Blue Root, and um she like knows the bartender there his name's kevin he's the whiskey guru apparently okay and he's like good friend to have you gotta try this drink i've been like puttering around with but we we realize that it is on the internet as well it's called the revolver which lends itself so well to murder so yeah she was like i have a cocktail for you it's gonna be perfect because name is awesome and it's super tasty um and What's in the drink? That's all I had to say about that. Okay. Um, so what you're going to need is your bourbon, which we use Oregon Spirit Distillers, which is a local distillery. Mm-hmm. Super tasty. Um, you also have Kahlua and you have your orange bitters. And then at the end, you kind of do a little twist to an orange peel to kind of get those oils mm-hmm. going. And then you plop the it essence. in there. The essence. A little splooge. <laughs> okay. So a, a handful of times now, you and I have been out to get coffees. Yeah. And you, so embarrassingly, ask baristas to give you a splooge of, like, vanilla or okay. whatever. That's not the right word. But and I've tried to coach you gently. <laughs> that is definitely not the right word. But on the flip side, it's this is what happens, Jackie. I don't ever drink coffee. So when I go, it's like this whole thing. You're uncomfortable and awkward the whole time. And I have to keep repeating my order over and over and over in my head. Like, it's real nerve-wracking. You can't talk to me, but obviously we're talking. And I get up and then I just panic. And I don't want to say squirt because that, to me, is weird. <laughs> it's a pump. It's a pump. That's they, weird, they too. Pump, but that's Ugh. what the word is. It's and a then, pump from a pump, and it pumps it in. But I just one pan- pump, two pumps. I know, but I panic. Two and then- pumps and a bump. Two pumps oh and God. a bump. That's an MC Hammer song. But that's why that's why I panic and I say splooge. <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> panic move you could make. <laughs> because uh, I think the first time I was getting coffees, and I was like, "Do you want one?" You're like, "Yes, this is what I want." And I went, "Cool." I am not saying that. <laughs> you mean a pump of this? And you're like, "And we had a little, little back and forth about it." Then we were in the car and we were at uh, Dutch Bros. Uh-huh. And that's kind of, in my mind, the funniest place you could ask for a splooge of something. You made me to like Dutch Bros. You made me like kind of like say it over me. Yeah, say it yeah. over you. And so it's like your car's really low. So I'm like over you and looking up at her and she's smiling because she's being Dutch Bros. Yeah. And, I'm and like, then you asked her for a splooge. <laughs> and I wish because we weren't my forerunner. So we were we were low. We were yeah. in the Honda. And I couldn't see the face or the reaction of the other people inside <laughs> because there's, I'm sure that hut was full of giggles. <laughs> Anyway, but did I did I or did I not get what I wanted? I don't. I didn't drink your drink. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so a splooge worked. <laughs> she got the point. Okay. Um. Why did we go down that road? I don't know. Oh, uh, a little splooge of the orange peel. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. I like this cocktail better than you. I think mm-hmm. um, I enjoy bourbon. So this me, just, to me is real bourbon. Let me try it again. So smelling it, you get that orange bitters and the orange peel, which is really nice. Mm, smelling must be fun. 
You're going to have to let that go. <laughs> to me, it smells kind of like a donut. I don't know whether, because we kind of combined, I, I could not do this uh, cocktail to save my life on a video tutorial, oh. so I kind of combined both of the mix-ups together. This is pretty good. I, I like bourbon. I like Kahlua. Mm-hmm. I like bitters and drinks. Yeah. Jackie, I'm going to tell you a little tiny history about this cocktail. Oh, it has a history. It has a little baby history. Are you ready? I wasn't sure if you were going to give me drink history or like the history of the revolver. No, they're not as cool as donuts, in my opinion. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't like donuts. <laughs> Anyhow, so introduced by San Francisco bartender John Santer in the early 2000s, the revolver is locked and loaded. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, this is Liquor.com. Liquor.com. They always make a little bit of a story. Thanks, Liquor.com. Um, so lock and loaded with a spicy bite of rye-heavy bullet bourbon and a slug of coffee liqueur. Uh, orange bitters lend subtle uh, brightness to that dark and mysterious duo. Go ahead and pull the trigger. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. I want to be a writer for them. <laughs> that would be fun. A little puntastic time. All right. So I would say if you like bourbon drinks, Jackie, you recommend this? I do. Okay, cool. I don't know that this would be a go-to drink of mine, but, like, you get sick of doing the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. So I definitely can see myself in the future sometime yeah. ordering this drink. Yeah, definitely. It's got all the all the ingredients are good. I like it. Um, is it murder time? It's murder time. Murder time. I'm going to tell you about Mark Allen Hopkinson. 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 He was born October 8th, 1949. Okay. We got a boomer. We got a boomer on our hands. <laughs> Uh, He was born in Evanston, Wyoming. Okay. He earned a football scholarship to the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. Party boy. Uh, (laughs) No offense to you, which took him out of state. So he left Wyoming to go to play football for college. Um, At some point, he's later convicted of delivering controlled substances. What quotation marks? Because I don't know what he was delivering. Okay. I'm going to guess he's a drug dealer of some sort. Um, So he gets that in 1971. Mm Mm-hmm. He's released from federal prison in 1975. Okay. And then he returns back home to southern Wyoming. So in 1974, so a little bit before that, Mm -hmm. Joe Hopkinson, Mark's father, um, he starts prepping groundwork. He's going to, he wants to create a trailer court, which is, I'm guessing, is kind of like a motor, like a motorhome park on property that he has. In doing so, he covers a ditch that carries water to the Reutz family. Okay. So the Reutzes, they consult an attorney. The attorney is Vincent, uh, V-E-H-A-R, Vihar is what I'll say. I don't, I don't know the correct way to say it. Um, and ultimately, a lawsuit is filed against Joe Hopkinson. So Mark's dad is involved in some sort of legal dispute because he wants to create this trailer park. And in doing so, he messed up water rights to someone down the way. Got it. Um, so, and, uh, Vincent Vihar is the lawyer for the Reutz family. Shortly after a judgment in the Reutz's favor, so the family down, like, they win. You can't mess up other people's water rights. Um, that's when Mark moves home. So all that happens before he moves home, but then he moves home shortly after his dad's in trouble for having done this. Um, so Mark takes over development of the trailer park and he's like, I'm going to get this reversed. I'm going to fight this. You're not wrong, Dad. Here we go. So in April of 1976, this is the following year, 
uh, Mark went to go see the Reutz family. And he asked them if there's something, if they can come to a, some sort of agreement or settlement without lawyers. Um, the Reutzes refused this because they won in court. There's no reason for them to come to an agreement with Mark. Yeah. Uh, Mark warns them that he's going to build the trailer park and he's going to do it in a way that inconveniences them immensely. Oh, no. So he's real bitter about it. Yeah. And that's my tie. There's bitters in the drink. Oh. <laughs> Mark is real bitter. Oh, my God. I mean, that's awesome. I'll take it. Uh, on May 6th, 1976, uh, so Mark goes back to the Reutzes. They've told him, kick rocks, never going to do it. Mm-hmm. He comes back and he attacks 55-year-old Frank Reutz. Um, after Mark is pulled away from Frank, Mark's father, Joe, he joins in. He's got a hammer with him. No, 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 no. And they just start brawling. Ah. So the two men together beat up Frank Reutz. Oh, my God. Um, when the melee's over, the Reutzes, again, reach out to their lawyer, Vincent Vihar, and they decide that they're going to press charges. Mm-hmm. However, the county attorney is a guy named Jim Phillips. Okay. And Jim Phillips had been previously hired by Mark in the original appeal. So there's a conflict of interest there. Yeah. The guy who needs to bring charges against Mark and his dad has been hired privately as their lawyer previously. Got it. In the same scenario with these same people. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow, Jim Phillips, acting in his official capacity, refuses to file charges against mm. Mark and his dad. Yeah. Also in 1975, Joe Hopkinson's, this is Mark's dad, he had approached the Fort Bridger sewer. So Fort Bridger is like the area that they're in. Uh, he approaches the sewer and water board because what he wants to do, he's proposing that the trailer park get annexed to the sewer district um, and he wants to connect up each site. And normally uh, there's a usual like $100 hookup fee. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm, I'm going to pay for all this. Let's get this going. Um, but before any official action could be taken, the board was presented with a petition. And the petition was signed by 95% of the district's membership. Whoa. Trying to get 95% of yeah. anybody in. So everyone overwhelmingly <laughs> uh, is petitioning the board to raise the fee. 100 yeah. bucks is not enough per site is what they're saying. Yeah. Um, so the board conducts several public meetings uh, in order to determine how much they should charge and blah, 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 blah. Um, after extensive negotiations with Mark's attorney, so Jim Phillips, who's, again, the county dude who's acting privately. Mm-hmm. Apparently this is fine in a small town. Um then, and Vincent Vihar, same guy as before, like, they're all dealing with this. A contract is entered into on March 13th, 1976, providing for the annexation of their property to have these trailer hookups. And they've agreed to $300 per trailer. Okay. So, it used to be 100 bucks. All the people that are on this sewer hookup are like, nope, needs to be more. Everyone agrees to 300 bucks. Once the hookups are all completed, Mark announces that they are not going to pay 300 bucks. So Mark completely reneges on the deal. Yeah. Um, while the board is trying to force Mark to pay, various board members start having threat. They start receiving threats from Mark. Okay. Uh, Vihar, so the lawyer, on behalf of the board, reacts by filing a suit on January 28th, 1977. And the complaint doesn't just seek to get the money from Mark that he's refusing to pay, but they're also requesting $50,000 in damages because of the threats. Okay. So there's this lawsuit going on because Mark's just kind of being an a-hole. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving on from that. In 1976, 
Mark hires this guy, Jeff Green. There's going to be a lot of different names. I'm going to try and oh, keep God. them straight for you. Okay. So Mark hires this guy, Jeff Green. Okay. He's a carpenter. Um, he wants him to work on some random projects for him. Probably stuff to do with the trailer park and, and whatnot. So Jeff, Jeff Green, introduces Mark to some of his buddies. He's got this buddy, uh, Mike Hickey, and this buddy, Jamie Heisel. Jeff, Mike, and Jamie are burgle buddies. And they burgle places. Please say that three times in a row. <laughs> They're burgle bottles. <laughs> I know I, I get through at least two of them. Oh. They're burgle buddies. Burgle. Burgle uh, buddy. Yeah. Burgle they, buddy. They burgle buddy. So Jamie Heisel, uh, who's one of these burgle buddies, <sighs> he, he gets arrested for marijuana possession. Um, and this is, okay, this 15-year-old girl, Kelly, oh, we looked her name up. Why shoe? Wick house. Wick Wick Nice job. So this fifteen year old fifteen year old girl, <laughs> Kelly Wickwiss, um, she makes a statement to police. So basically she rats out Jamie and she's like, he's got marijuana at his house. And what I can't suss out of this is that it says that she makes a statement after spending a night at Jamie's, which sounds salacious mm. for a fifteen year old and this dude, I don't know that anything happened, but somehow that, that's all that gets said in any of this. Okay. So Jamie gets super mad that this 15-year-old girl rats him out. Yeah. And he starts making plots with Mike that they're going to murder her. Okay. So he goes from zero to 60. Yeah. Um, the plan that Mike and Jamie come up with is that Mike is going to pick up Kelly. So obviously she feels comfortable with Mike. Yeah. Um, she's going to pick up or he's going to pick up Kelly and he's going to take her to a secluded spot in the country. No. Where Jamie will meet them and they will kill her. Ah. But Jamie never shows up. Okay. So Mike picks up Kelly. He takes her to this spot. But he doesn't realize Jamie's not going to show up. So he's already telling Kelly, we're going to murder you. <gasps> what? If, so, why would you say that? Because right out I don't there. I the sense that they're like oh my super God. smart. But so Mike is out there with Kelly. Jamie hasn't shown up. So he just kind of, I don't know that he freaks out, but he just hits her with a rock and kills ah, her. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. No. Then... This is like the only gross detail I'll give you. He, he could have been like, April Fool's. <laughs> Let's go back to town. He decides. This is, what, this is what makes me think Mike is insane. Because he decides as proof to give Jamie that he did kill her. He cuts out her genitals. And he takes those with him. And he buries her body. That's his reaction to all of this. So I get the sense that he's like cuckoo. But you don't, then you'd never really hear anything else about him being. What? Yeah. He agrees to kill this girl with his friend that his friend is upset about. Mike's not even involved in this. Yeah. So. Did he. He's quick to, uh, he's quick to some crazy. Yeah. So he just. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. So this poor 15 year old girl gets wrapped up in all of Did this. Did he like sexually abuse her anyway? I didn't see that anymore. He just mutilates her. And, yep. Okay. All right. Okay. Back to Mark. So these are kind of new new friends of Mark's. Yeah. So in 1976, a lot of this happens in like 76, 77. Uh, Mark approaches this guy, Harold James Taylor, about doing a job for him. And Wait, with the murder and stuff, did anything come of it? Did they nope, find her body? That, She's a missing person. Okay. Okay. And now Mark approaches this guy, Harold, and he's like, hey, I need you to do a job for me. Um, he explains that there's this guy in Evanston, this guy in Wyoming, um, that he needs beat up. Mm. And they agree that for $200, Harold will, Harold will beat up the guy. 
Mark gives him a photo of Vincent Vihar. So he gives him a picture of the attorney that keeps being a problem. Oh, no. And he's like, beat this dude up for $200. So uh, Harold agrees to this. And then later Mark comes back and he's like, hey, instead of beating him up, I want you to kill him. Ah. And Harold's like, okay, but instead of 200 bucks, it's going to be 600 bucks. 600 bucks? Isn't that crazy? 600 bucks? $600 to murder someone. And he's paid that $600 on December 19th, 1976. But soon after, because now Harold's been paid, he's like, no, I'm not going to kill him. And he just doesn't do it. Cool. Cool. Good. Good. So in March of 1977, Mark speaks with this guy, Kenny Near. Um, and this guy had previously been the president on the sewer board. So they're having issues with the sewer board and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So Mark offers Kenny uh, $2,000 for him to have testimony to say that the board was acting in a vindictive manner. Mm -hmm. And Kenny's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So he's trying to pay people off. He's mm -hmm. killing people. Like there's, or he's trying to kill people. Um, super pissed off. Mark returns to Jeff Green. And so he was the con like the handyman carpenter with his little burglar buddies. He goes to Jeff and he's like, hey, um, you, me and Mike, let's figure out what are some ideas? Like, what are some ways we can get rid of Vincent? Like, yeah. I need to get rid of this lawyer. What can we come up with? And they don't really, several things are suggested, but they don't really land on anything. And Mark does learn in all of these conversations that Mike had killed Kelly. So he learns about all that, the, all that. Yeah. So on April 4th, 1977, Jeff Green, uh, he's caught with a bomb in his possession. He's driving Mark's car and he's speeding through Utah. Oh, my God. So it turns out he's on his way to Arizona to plant this bomb uh, in this guy's car, this guy, George Mariscal. He's driving all the way to Arizona with a bomb in his car? For Mark. Basically, Mark gave him a bomb and was like, I need you to put this in this other guy's car down in Arizona. What the hell? So when Mark learns that Jeff gets arrested, uh, he and Mike go and they bail him out. And then Mark's like, all right, Jeff's too hot. I can't talk to him about killing people anymore. He got caught with a bomb <laughs> in his possession. Oh, my God. Okay. So then in the next four months, uh, Mark and Mike are talking about, like, how are ways we can kill Reutz and this lawyer? We need to come up with it, get rid of these guys. So Mark promises Mike $2,000 plus expenses. Um, so he's saying, I'll give you two grand to kill him. Doing and, like a food allowance per yeah, day? Yeah, and you'll have per diem. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'll help you cover up the Kelly's murder. Okay. Um, so... Mark and Mike, so they make several trips all around and they figure out how they're going to do it. And finally, at the end of July, Mark's like, okay, um, let's kill the attorney. Let's leave the Royces alone. Let's kill the attorney. He's the troublemaker. Um, and the best way to do it is we're going to toss a bomb into his basement window and we're just going to blow his house up. Okay. So uh, on the in the first week of August, uh, Mark gets uh, noticed that the attorney's going to be deposed like for all this stuff. So like things are happening with the, like the trial stuff's kind of picking up. So on Saturday, August 6th, when, uh, Mark knew when Mark saw Mike at around 6 PM, um, he gets, he's like, all right, go take the bomb over there. Let's do it tonight. So Mike goes to a local bar and he hangs out till one thirty AM. Then he's driven out to the country with some lady that he met at the bar and they have some sort of sexual relations out in the middle of nowhere. Then they go back to the bar at around 2.30 uh, in order for him to get his car. Then he drives drunk home. 
And once he's home and realizes that his girlfriend isn't there, he decides that he'll go drop the bomb in this guy's basement. What? It's like the craziest. Uh, if someone hired you to kill somebody, like, yeah, all of this is like, it feels like that movie where you watch where it's like, uh, Zach Galifianakis like doing a heist like it's just, it's <laughs> oh, just like oh, that one? it's yeah. just mayhem and a bunch of people with these like half thought out plans God. okay so is he gonna go do it he does so oh. he's like he gets home he's like my girlfriend's not here I'm gonna go through this bomb my girlfriend this. yeah I'm gonna go he okay yeah exactly right. yeah the points in the story are there on purpose <laughs> so he's driving and there's a highway patrolman who testifies that he saw, a, like, a car driving around that time, approximately 30 miles away. So it's 2.45 a.m. Uh, he arrives in Evanston. He uh, kind of looks around the house. He makes sure it's safe. And he throws the bomb in the basement window. It's about 3.30 in the morning. Where are they making all these bombs? Are they Googling how to make a bomb? Yeah, and they you get, just... like, bomb books from the library. Like, there's, there's, there's bomb stuff out there. Uh... The house explodes. Ah, like big? Like a boom? It blows up. Down to the ground. Uh, on his Are way, neighbors affected by it I so big? I don't or? know. Like, when people get attributed to, like, deaths and stuff, it's only ever the people that Mark intended. Okay. Um, on the way back to his house, he picks up a hitchhiker. What? The hitchhiker testifies uh, that he got picked up sometime between 3 and 4. 3.30 in the morning and 4. How did they find the hitchhiker? I don't know. <laughs> Around 4.30 a.m., uh, Mike, Mike finds his girlfriend and they go home. So he must be calling or doing, like, it's so crazy. What? It's this ramshackle. And you know he's just driving around drunk doing all yeah. this. Hey, is that Bob? I should pull over. Yeah. Hey, Bob, you want to yeah, drive? Yeah, he picks up this random hitchhiker. Then he drops that guy off. And the police are able to find that guy. And maybe he's, like, a local and he's yeah. hitchhiking. He's not, like, passing yeah. through. Then uh, he finds his girlfriend somewhere and brings her back. So after the bombing, Mark decides uh, that he and Mike should not be seen together. Like, they've, oh, they've been in go. cahoots. Smart. They need to be really smart about this. Uh-huh. Um, so Mike doesn't see him much and never collects the $2,000. Hmm. Wouldn't you be like, yo, I killed somebody. Where's my money? Yeah. The whole, all of it's crazy. Can I get my per diem? I went to yeah. Sparrow Bakery yeah. eight times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all of his drinks at the bar that night. Oh, Yeah. I don't know if he paid that lady in the field. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Mike goes out to California. He's like, things are hot in Wyoming. I got to get out of here. So he goes to California. I'm going to L.A. I'm going to L.A. Uh, while he's there, things kind of start to fall apart. So Jamie, Oh, now they're falling apart? Yeah. Okay. So Jamie, Jamie's the one who got in trouble because of Kelly. He's not the one that killed her. Okay. But Jamie was the one who had Kelly over at his house, and he got the marijuana charge. Got it. Um. He gets questioned about by police about a couple robberies, like larcenies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and he feels like he's going to get in trouble, so he squeals. And he's like, hey, uh, my buddy Mike killed this girl, Kelly. Yeah. So now they've got a little bit more information on all this stuff. So uh, Jamie takes authorities. He knows where the gravesite is. So Jamie takes authorities to the gravesite. Because Mike told him. Because he's like, it's done, man. Here's her genitals, and I buried her here. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. So he takes them there. Um, he also, like, he, so he tells them about Mike. He tells them about Jeff Green, um, all the, like, burglaries that they've been a part of. Then the police track them down in California. They start asking about all that stuff. Um, he's denying that he's been a part of any of it. Uh, then when he gets back to the state, they charge him with murder. Mm-hmm. So 
Mark is like, oh, shoot. Okay. Mike's in a lot of trouble. Um, in order to save him, he starts coming up with this plan. And he's like, all right, let's, Green, why don't you and I start telling stories about Jamie and let's throw him under the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just been some of this, like, burglary stuff. But let's, he's the one who killed her. He's the one that was mad at her. Like, it's all him. Yeah. Um. So the charges get dropped against Mike. What? And they indict Jamie because there are, there's motive. Yeah. And you've got people saying that he was a part of it. Yeah. It's kind of sad. Like, it sucks that that's how it works. Uh, so Mike doesn't go to prison. Oh, so Mike gets off of that, but then he does go to prison for the burglary stuff. Okay. Um, and that's in the spring of 1978. So okay. all this is kind of like going on. We're talking, but you know, it's time of the prime. Yeah. Um, so now it's time for Jamie's murder trial and Jeff Green is like, I can't do this anymore. I have to tell the truth. Jamie's going to get in a lot of trouble. He didn't do anything. And Jeff also didn't, like, Jeff didn't murder anybody. So I get why Jeff is kind of, uh, deciding he's going to change his mind. Um, so he starts saying, like, Mark has all this stuff to do with stuff. Mikey, they want to kill this lawyer, like, the lawyer's house. Like, he yeah, starts squealing yeah. on the other stuff um, because he's afraid that Jamie's going to go to the death, like, he's going to get the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like, we're all lying about everything. Here's what the truth actually is. Um, here's who actually killed Kelly and why and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so Jeff starts expressing that he's really afraid of Mark and... Um, Based on Jeff's testimony, they drop the charges against Jamie. They're like, oh, okay, cool. We got that wrong because people were lying. Um, the news of Jeff's testimony hits the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And Mark is like, Mark tells uh, Jeff's sister, I'm going to get him. Oh. So in March of 1979, uh, Mark and Mike, uh, they go to uh, court in Cheyenne. They've got federal charges. Um, that came out of Jeff's testimony Yeah, about the uh, attempted bomb of the car down in Arizona, about the bomb and the thing. They both get convicted and sentenced to life in prison uh, at California, Lompoc. Okay. Because federal stuff, you don't end up being in the same state that you're charged in, like you can go anywhere. Okay. Um, so while he's in prison, he has unlimited access on the phone, and he starts making all these telephone calls. What does that mean? They're not recording you? Or... Um, no, I think they record. Like you're in prison, I think they record. What your is phone that? Calls. Just he gets to make phone calls whenever. Yeah, he like for whatever reason he doesn't have a limit on. I guess some prisoners have limits. Okay, okay, got it. He has no limits on his phone calls. So from April 8th to May 29th, uh, it's like a 51 day period. He makes 114 phone calls, and he's calling a former roommate who lives in Salt Lake City, uh-huh. and uh, like consistently. Yep. Okay. So this dude's name is Hap Hap Russell. Um, he's like, you need to come visit me in prison. Cause he probably can't say certain stuff. Uh-huh. He's like, you gotta come visit me. You gotta come visit me. Um, and in this, he's like, we need to conspire. I, I don't want this whole, like trying to bomb this guy down in Arizona thing. So let's try to like figure out a way to murder Jeff. Cause he's the only one who's implicating me in that. Mm-hmm. So while he's in prison, he's like, we need to kill Jeff. Um, then he starts calling this ex-girlfriend of his and he's like, uh, I need you to, and this is where it's, I don't really, like, they talked a bunch of times. And essentially, he finally gets her to cut out a picture of Jeff from a yearbook mm-hmm. and give it to Hap Russell so that Hap knows what Jeff looks like to go kill from Jeff. From a yearbook? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's years later. Yeah. Um. So, meanwhile, there's, like, 
money is exchanging can't so like he, uh, mark is just like wheeling and dealing from inside prison he's okay. like i'm gonna have this guy do it and these other people are gonna help him get all the money he needs and get all the information that he needs so on may 16th mark gets he like calls his ex or uh he calls his ex-girlfriend and he's like hey like where's jeff at she's kind of i don't think she really knows that she's helping him kill someone but maybe she does um they figure out like i'm just making a scrapbook from prison exactly yeah exactly Um, for me so he gets an idea of his whereabouts from jennifer um then she tells him so she's involved so she tells him like the deed is done so there's like some more details in there but essentially she's like this is she she tells the other dude where he is then she lets mark know you don't need to worry about jeff anymore um then a bunch of money shows up in her bank account she's moving it to other people so she's a part of like laundering the money to other people um there's like plea deals and stuff mike's trying to not be in trouble um mark gets indicted for other crimes like so it all starts to kind of pile on he starts getting in trouble yeah um it all ultimately ends uh they had suspended the death penalty in wyoming for a number of years okay and then reinstituted it um so he was executed by lethal injection uh, by lethal injection at wyoming state penitentiary on january 22nd 1992 his last meal was pizza and a fruit plate that he shared with his mother and family and his last statement is they have killed an innocent man i didn't have you know but that's the quote yeah. He's essentially saying i didn't do it um he, i guess you can choose to not allow witnesses at your execution at least in wyoming Oh. Um, so there was no one around and then witnesses are brought in afterwards to view the remains and determine that the person is indeed dead. Yeah. Um, so he died January 22nd, 1992. Weird. I didn't know that you could have your last meal with family. I thought it was just, I think every state's a little bit yeah. different. And then, so wait, did he originally get a death penalty sentence, but they didn't have the death penalty or like, how did he all oh, of a sudden the timing of it? I think. They had reinstituted it, but no one had been murdered by the time. Oh, or no, not, like that because the the previous it was decades and decades before that uh-huh. the last person um, had been executed in Wyoming. Yeah, and I don't know if like they had lifted it, and then he was the first person to go through all the appeals yeah. process and all that. Like that part of the timing, I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, what a bad dude. Yeah. What if like he just couldn't take no for an answer ever? Yeah. Yeah. Like oh god, and he was just yeah. That was crazy. There's so many. <laughs> There's just no sense to any of yeah. it. Like his reactions to everything are o- not over normal. the top. Yeah. yeah, and we don't know anything. And about he just it. keeps finding these other dudes who're like, yeah, I'll like that's something the... that's so wrong is so commonplace. That is so crazy too. Like how how do these people find each other to be like we're gonna do hood rat things with my hood rat friends? Yeah, like... <laughs> burgle buddies. Burgle buddies. Like. <laughs> is there like a Tinder for burgle buddies? And <laughs> you just know. swipe right? Like I want to. Do you want to steal a safe? Do you want to murder someone? Ugh, the dark web. We're a match. <laughs> yeah. Web. Oh God. Okay. Well, that was super good. Thank yeah. You. Got it. Like, I there's. I'm trying to like condense it and have it not go off into the weeds. But there's so many different little yeah. paths that all end up with. Him Do we know any of his like childhood stuff? Like, no. Okay. And he just lived on his own on this property and just. Well, it's like he's in there. Like his dad's obviously willing to come swing a hammer and fight a dude. Oh yeah, yeah, that was the dad. Okay, yeah. I don't know where mom is in all of this, <laughs> or if they're siblings. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Any books or story or like movies or? 
I don't know. Because it's kind of... So the way I stumbled upon this, yeah, I don't remember what in my reading took me here. Somehow I was thinking about water rights. Why? I don't know why. Okay. Either I had read something that mentioned like Chinatown, the movie Chinatown, uh-huh. all about like water rights. Somehow water rights ended up in my ether. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, I'll bet somebody has been <laughs> murdered over water rights. Definitely. Because people get real upset about it. Yeah. And that was how I found that one. That's crazy. Jackie? I'm going to tell you about Robert Sprangler. <laughs> I like it already. <laughs> Sprangler? S-P-A-N-G-L-E-R. Okay, Robert Spangler. Mm-hmm. There you go. So Robert grew up in Ains, Iowa. His dad is a civil engineer who I guess did pretty well for himself because there's a lab at Iowa State University named after him. Mm. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, Robert is playing football in high school he's very charming everyone likes him he's really good with the ladies he's being an iowa guy yeah what's that mean he's just like a he's a like a football player like a potatoes like a, yeah <laughs> cool. i got a i got an idea in my head okay so while he's in high school he meets this gal named nancy stallman and they start dating and then after high school they get married in 1955 and they move to little Ta- littleton colorado when they get there, Robert has many jobs over the years. Not like he's bouncing around, but, you know, you kind of yeah. fluctuate. So uh, some of his jobs are working for Honeywell's Camera and Instruments Division. He serves as a public relations director for a nonprofit organization. He's a part-time DJ at a oh, radio station. Bah, bah, bah. And he even sometimes uh, performs in local plays. He's a he's a renaissance man yeah he's just dabbling yeah um so like i said he's very well liked and he's well known around town when is he gonna become a murderer hold on to your butts uh so um everyone's like he's super polite yeah i like overly the top like polite and like everyone likes him and likable dude what but one coworker from the radio said the only complaint i ever had about him was that he was too cheerful too early in the morning yeah, not everyone likes that. <laughs> uh, Katie and Phil used to say that about Kyle because he'd just be like, "Good morning," because he's chipper. And they're like, "Oh," yeah, and they're not chipper in <laughs> the morning. No, absolutely not. No, before coffee, don't yeah. make eye contact. I'm inconsistent, so sometimes I will get people will be irritated with me for being a happy morning person, but then I can be a grump with the rest of them. Oh yeah, yeah. You're a chameleon. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, he's a lovable guy. And then, like, him and Nancy start having babies. Okay. So, they have a son named David in 1961 and a daughter named Susan in 1963. Okay. So, a little American household. Yep. One and one. Yeah. So, on the morning of December 30th, 1978, Robert's at work and his neighbor stops by their house to borrow something or whatever. He's, okay. She's going by the house. When the neighbor comes over, uh, I didn't have a lot of details, but I want to say she's knocking. Maybe the door's open. She goes in. And she finds the family dead. What? Yeah. Okay. So she immediately calls the cops. The mom and the two kids. Mm-hmm. And the kids are how old? They're teenagers? Yeah, they're 15 and 17 at this point. Ugh. So she calls the cops. They start searching the house. And they find Susan, who's 15 at the time, uh, in her bed. And she's partially, uh, partially clothed. And she has a gunshot wound to her back. David, who is 17, is found dead in his bedroom with a gunshot wound to his chest. Nancy is found in the basement. She's slumped over a typewriter with a bullet wound high on her forehead. Whoa. There's a suicide note written on the typewriter, and her initials are signed in pen at the bottom. 
It's weird. Yeah. Um, so the cops are working the crime scene and Robert comes home from work and he finds the deputies in his house. Um, they didn't call him? I don't know. He, he gets to the house he gets whether to the house, he was yeah. alerted or not. So they take him in for questioning and Robert explains how he was at work all day. Um, so the police start questioning him further and Robert admits that him and Nancy were having troubles in their marriage and that he had started an affair with a coworker named Sharon Cooper. This? Okay. If he's not guilty, mm-hmm. he shouldn't be talking to the police. Yeah. And he should have a lawyer and he should be quiet. But maybe he just, like, wants to get everything off but his chest. But maybe he's guilty and I'm fine with him talking to the police. Yeah. Okay. So, however, Robert's original story just keeps changing. Mm. So they conduct two separate <laughs> private polygraph exams. Okay. <laughs> I don't... I'm not going to go off on this tangent. Yeah. But please. Yeah. Well... I, I, Tell like, your anecdote. It's really funny. <laughs> the other day, I like leap and bound up to Jackie at work, and I'm like, Jackie, do you want to be annoyed? <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's early, but okay. I, my specific <laughs> words were, I listened to classical music on the way into work. <laughs> Try and get me. <laughs> and I got you. You did. I was annoyed. Uh, so um, Kyle's like looking at jobs that are posted, and he found one for um, a polygraph examiner position, and it pay it starts at 70k a year, and no experience required which is the most irritating part <laughs> about all of it and like you could see it in the little blurb you know how it gives you a sh- yeah. summary before you click on the job so it's like right there in the summary and then you click on it and it's like a they send you off for a 12-week program and they like teach you all the things and and then you're good to go it's such a farce mm-hmm. no one and i mean no one should take a polygraph mm-hmm. if you're guilty like fine be manipulated but you know but like ugh. no stop it do you think mainly they just use it as a scare tactic now yes it's a way to scare stupid people into not even stupid people it's a way to intimidate someone mm-hmm. into making mistakes mm-hmm. that even when you're not guilty mm-hmm. then they zoom in and now they're now they're not looking in other places yeah and so, like, if you, like, from a crime standpoint, it's worthless, in my opinion, because it also it can be a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And from a, like, job standpoint, from people having to, like, take them to have certain positions, it's, I, I, I've talked to people who've passed them and gotten jobs and they're like, oh, I lied through my teeth. And everyone told me, lied through your teeth. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll catch certain blips and, like, they're expecting you to lie and it's fine. And then people who are truthful about, like, it's just, it's such a joke. Yeah. Yeah. I got you annoyed again. You did. You you know it bothers me. Okay. So they hook him up to two different exams. Yeah. And his answers are inconclusive. So they're like, meh, we're not getting anything from this. So on top of that, investigators determined that the murder weapon is a 38 caliber revolver. Oh. That's my tie. Mm -hmm. uh, Which was found by Nancy. It is registered in Robert's name, and evidence of gunshot residue is found on his right palm. That looks bad. It looks super bad. How did they collect the evidence? I mean, you can always... If you can't... That's the OJ thing. Mm -hmm. If you can't argue your way out of it, Mm -hmm. argue against the evidence. Yep. Mm -hmm. So even though they have all this evidence, uh, the coroner closes the case as a double homicide slash suicide. Oh, so, so there's some questioning things about, what's his name? Robert? Mm-hmm. 
But he's like, you know what? Let's go with she killed the kids, mm-hmm. wrote this note, killed herself. It, yeah. It, it, it looks more like that than it does than the little things that are bugging me about the other stuff. Yeah. Okay. And because of this and the fact that they have exhausted all other leads, the sheriff's office is forced to close the case. And once the case is closed, most of the evidence is either returned to Robert or destroyed. Because it's closed. It's closed. Hmm. Case closed. <laughs> That's what that means. <laughs> um. So seven months later, Robert marries his coworker, Sharon. The one he was having the affair with. Mm-hmm. And she moves into the house that Robert's family died in. That Do you think that's weird? Yes. I think it's weird. Yeah. Even for Robert to still be there, like, move out of that so house. I think I'm capable of, like, mentally and emotionally, of moving into a house where somebody died. Mm-hmm. Like what? Like an old person died or like a murder house? I think I can move into a murder house. Like an Ed Kemper house? You're going to go there where he chopped up heads? Maybe. Ugh. Maybe. Ugh. I think I could live in a murder house, Ugh. but I can't live in my own murder house. Where your family died? If I survived something, whether I was a part of it or came back, like if that's personal to me, mm-hmm. I'm out of there. I'm mm-hmm. creating new memory. Like that's... Uh, I don't want to still be there, but I could move into someone else's murder. I think I could move into another murder house. Absolutely no. I, you don't think so at all? No, absolutely From no. a ghost standpoint or just like yes. a heebie-jeebie no, standpoint? No, all of it. Just, uh, I already have people, not people, I already have Kyle looking under the bed for people and in the closet. Like, I can't, I can't take that juju. Mm-mm. Nope. Mm. I think I can. No. Yeah. Nope. I would definitely, like, have my friend Ty Ty come, like, smudge the house, yeah. but... I feel like we have a work ghost, a bathroom work ghost, and that creeps me out. <laughs> oh, because the paper towel machine? Yeah. Eh. Okay. If you guys have a really cheap murder house for Jackie, let's know. I like where I live. Uh, okay, so they're living in this house. They're married. They're loving, they're loving life. And they also are loving this common joy of hiking. They just, they love to hike. They're hikers. They're, they're hikers. I bet they're like burgeoning birders. Mm-hmm. So Sharon enjoys hiking so much that she writes a book about her hikes through the Grand Canyon. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But eventually the couple starts getting into fights. And once Robert's dad passes away, his behavior gets more argumentative to the, to the point that Sharon starts telling people that she thinks Robert is after her. So, so they finally divorce in 1988. So now they're parting ways. Would you be concerned about your friend if she's worried about her partner and his family died? Yes, absolutely. Day one. Yeah. Get out of there. Okay. We have a murder podcast. Obviously, I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> um, so Robert just loves to love. So he puts an ad in the personals and he meets a woman named Donna Suddling and he turns on the charm. And in August of 1990, they get married. So it's, it's a, like a couple years later. Okay. Uh, a little about Donna. She's an aerobics instructor. Oh. Hey, with five grown children and numerous grandchildren. Five grown children? Mm-hmm, and numerous grandchildren from a previous marriage. Big old house. Big old family. However, Donna hates hiking. Ooh, not into it. Not into it. And the reason being is she's afraid of heights. So like high hiking specifically robert loves grand canyon and she doesn't want to go to the grand canyon okay there's yeah. other hiking yeah, but yeah. if they love grand canyon and where they like i'm gonna guess they live in a hot ass place uh-huh no one wants to go hiking in the heat yeah Ugh. <laughs> um, i love hiking and no thank you no mm-mm. one time 
Christina made me go up Tumalo Mountain, and we like we didn't bring water. Mm-hmm. I That's the one right across from Basher, right? I about killed her. Yes, because we. <laughs> she's like, because she had a big she water. She loves bo- that mountain. That, she that's loves a that good mountain. hike. I've done it. We for some reason she's like, oh, I'll leave a, a, my big water bottle back at the car, <laughs> and I was like, ah, I need water now. I'm at the top of the mountain. <laughs> Anywho, okay, so ba 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 ba. So. Yeah, Donna just hates hiking, and Robert just loves it, and he, like, loves the fresh air, and he's like, God damn it, Donna, just come outside yeah. with me. And once again, his marriage starts to have problems. So to help save their marriage, they decide to go on a backpacking trip through the Grand Canyon in April of 1993. This seems like a lot of give on her part. That's so she, funny that you said that, because I had that in my notes. She doesn't like hiking, but she's like, all right, save the marriage, let's go on a backpacking mm-hmm. trip yeah. through the Grand Canyon. So Donna's so just... Like, it's, it's like hiking on steroids. Yeah. So Donna's just like... Because your hips hurt and you gotta carry shit. Can I just read it? I was like, so they go on this backpacking trip, which seems more of a compromise on Donna's part. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyways, okay, yeah. so... Um, so they go on this trip and they're out there for a couple days and um, all of a sudden, Robert is now walking up to the ranger station. Alone. Alone. Solo. And he calmly tells the ranger that his wife, Donna, has fallen off a cliff and is dead. Okay. He explains that they... You hit my annoyance point. There you go. (laughs) I told you it was going to be annoying. Um, He explains that they had stopped to take a picture on the trail. And when he looked back, his wife was gone. Rangers locate Donna's body approximately 160 feet below the trail the autopsy report concludes that she sustained massive injuries including abrasions contusions lacerations and multiple fractures of the neck chest and lower extremities here's the pushing off a cliff thing that is so hard to prove Mm -hmm. if you don't have a witness long live the king yes yeah (laughs) like all right so dude comes up calmly Mm mm-hmm I get if it took you, like, let's even say hours or days to get back to wherever to tell people Calmly? about Calmly? No, no, no. Here, let's uh, say you're exhausted. Like, you can't run the whole way to go tell uh-huh. somebody that they died, even though you would want to. Yeah. If it was an accident and yeah. you were a normal person. Yeah. But let's say you're at the last part of, maybe it was like a whole day's hike to get there. Now you're seeing the ranger station. Mm-hmm. Now is when you turn on the jets and you're running up and you're like... Yeah. Oh, thank God you're here. Like, yeah. now I can tell, like, I don't know. I just, the calm bothers me. And then, like, if you did push someone off the cliff, I feel like you put on the theatrics and you'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah. It was all, she, there I was do, a banana I'll, peel. I judge people's reactions to stuff, but yeah. also, like, everyone behaves so differently and it, it's true to who they are. Yeah. I guess in my head, he, this is how I envisioned it. He, like, walked up. Hands in pockets, just kind of like, oh, yeah, my wife's yeah. So Robert is never directly implemented in his wife's death because it was ruled an accident. But he did get national attention for the tragedy, and soon he is appearing in interviews on several TV shows. Oh, mm-hmm. so maybe I'm a little aware of this. Possibly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on each interview, he appears like a grieving husband. He hmm. talks about Donna's accidental accidental death and the dangers of hiking in the Grand Canyon. Is nobody else like if you're Diane Sawyer and this guy's like, "Oh my God, Donna, she died. She fell off this cliff." Mm-hmm. Would you be like, "Cool, Robert. Um, 
people are also curious about your other family. Yeah. I, is I, no one bringing that up when they talk to you? I get that, like, let's say everything is on the up and up. Mm-hmm. That's totally shitty to bring up. Mm-hmm. But if he's a murderer, I kind of want to turn the screws a bit. Yeah, but, like, so say you are doing the interview. I don't know if, like, his first family's death made it into the news. Like, yeah, if I it know. was just in, you yeah, know what I mean? Right. Like but he you was. Got a, in, you got interns googling shit. Google is a baby. Google is a little baby Google at this point. You have asked Jeeves. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, asked Jeeves. You're not doing the the damn thing yet, or ever. <laughs> All right. Okay. So he's saying it's so dangerous to hike in the Grand Canyon. My okay. wife died there. What was my me? Wife. Blah, blah 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 blah. But in the meantime, he's continuing to backpack through the Grand Canyon with friends several several times a year. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he's doing things that mm-hmm. don't look so great. So again, Robert loves to love. He does. So he reconnects with his second ex-wife, Sharon. Oh. Uh huh. And she moves back into his house. And why did they break up? And her friend, like her friends, were concerned about him, right? She was like, yeah. just being mm-hmm. scary. Yeah. Okay. Um. And she moves back into his house. So he's less scary now that another wife has died. Yes. You can't. You can't. We're not going to paint a picture where she doesn't know about the third wife dying mm-hmm. she knows about it mm-hmm. so she knows what happened with the first family mm-hmm. she had a scary situation mm-hmm. now the third wife has died mm-hmm. there's, there's got to be some sort of like weird traumatic power over her like well he so they were talking about he's super charming and he picks his quote-unquote victims he like picks a personality that he knows he can control yeah so i'm bothered by the fact that he got her back in there mm-hmm. again so where are her girlfriends at? <laughs> Sister. So she moves back into his house. Ugh. The same house where his entire family died. Is she the one who didn't like hiking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then on October 2nd of 1994, Robert comes home and finds Sharon unresponsive next to a bottle of Tylenol. I'm. She... How full of yourself are you if you are Robert that you're like, yeah, I'm going to get away with it a third time. Super full of yourself. Well, not just the third. You, you know, your wife, your daughter, your, your son. Yeah, the third your instance, wife, not yeah. the third death. Yeah. yeah. This. Oof. Mm-hmm. So she died of a drug overdose later that day, and her death is not investigated by law enforcement. Who is the sheriff? Is he best friends with Robert? I just don't. Well, we're going to get into it. The counties aren't talking to each other. Oh, this again. Mm-hmm. So in January of 1999, investigators team up from the U.S. Department of Interior, the National Park Service, and various counties in Arizona, and they start comparing their cold case homicides. Wow. Mm-hmm. And they start to see this common thread between all these cases. Oh, it's Robert. He's over here. He's over here. He's over here. So they bring in an assistant U.S. attorney from the District of Arizona with experience in capital murder cases and who also has personal knowledge of the Grand Canyon. So oh. they're going out there and they're going to be like, mm. we got a hiker on the case. Mm-hmm. And together they combine the cases and classify the motive as insurance fraud slash murder. Yeah. Um, so they start their investigation and they start talking to people who had known Robert. And one lady gives them a copy of a letter she received from Robert when um, and he explains to her that he has terminal cancer. Mm. So, they're like, if this is true, maybe we can use this information to our advantage. So, they head to Colorado to finally interview Robert to try to get a confession. And so, the FBI confirmed that Robert does have terminal cancer. 
And so when they bring him in, they tell him that the FBI profile profilers just want to study him because he is a unique killer. But at this point, he hasn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so they're like, it's interesting. "Mm -hmm." So they interview him for four hours and then let him go and tell him that if he wants to continue the interview, just to call them back tomorrow. Because he's like, not really. He's like, yeah, chatting with them, being charming, but he's not really giving them anything. And they're like, well, we can't hold him. We got to let him go. And he probably thinks he's like, they're probably, my guess is, feeding into that ego a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, let's let him think he's winning us over. We'll let him go. They've mm-hmm. got tabs on mm-hmm. him. And and the team is like, there's no way he's going to call us back. But like, we're going to yeah. try this. But the next day, Robert calls them. Because he's full of himself. Mm-hmm. So during the second interview, Robert tells investigators how, while married to his first wife, he fell in love with another woman and then shot his wife and two teenage children to be with her. Robert then explains that he had to smother his son with a pillow after shooting him because the bullet wound was not lethal. He strongly denied any involvement in the overdose overdose death of his second wife and refused to discuss the death in the Grand Canyon because he feared a civil lawsuit from his third wife's children. And he it, he does have terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So investigators... It's weird to own up to the first one, which is like the coldest of all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so investigators encourage Robert to talk about the Grand Canyon murder by telling him that killing several people at one time did not make him a serial killer. This approach worked on Robert. After a period of silence, he said, you've got your serial. Robert then described how he quote unquote masterminded the Grand Canyon murder. They are playing into Mm him. Wow. And uh, so he's like, yes, I did the Grand Canyon murder. Murder. I pushed my wife over the edge while she was facing me. Oof. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's twisted. Mm-hmm. So he gives himself up, and then Robert starts thinking about how his reputation is going to be tainted. And he's like, whoa, oh, my God, wait, I think I've made a mistake. I, I, I like, I'm known, I'm a pillar in the community. Like, I'm a, I'm a DJ. Like, <laughs> people love me. Yeah. And so he's like, is there any way that you guys can, like, minimize the publicity, like, around this case? Like just, like, quietly mm-hmm. take me away. Don't yeah. talk about mm-hmm. it. And he, like, writes a letter to the FBI, like, asking them this. And so in the letter, Robert... Cool. Ar- we're going to publish that? <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this letter, Robert argues that he is not like other serial killers who target people for race or sexual orientation, but instead his motivation to kill centered around the anticipation... Oh, anticipate a gain of eliminating his wives and children. During the interview, he tells investigators that killing them was easier than divorce. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Robert pleads guilty in federal district court in Arizona to the first degree murder of his third wife, and he admits to killing his first wife and two children. He sends to life in prison without parole, and he dies of cancer in federal prison on August 5th of 2001. Wow. Mm-hmm. Isn't, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Toria. Sorry. In true fashion. <laughs> I was annoyed half, like, it was a story mm-hmm. until I was annoyed. And then it was just annoying the rest of the way. It was just so interesting how he could fit in with the community. Yeah. And kind of like Ted Bundy in a way. Just well, like it's one of those where it's like... I guess if you're capable of doing that, mm-hmm. why not just live that way? 
like just let your murder flag fly no 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 exactly the opposite (laughs) they're able to oh be such a part of society Mm -hmm. and they have all these people like i i don't understand the i don't get where their heads are at where that's not enough yeah I mean, it's kind of like... It, that's all a trick to get away with this other shit they want to do. I'll clean eat all week, but you better su- bet your sweet ass I'm thinking about that cheat meal all week. <laughs> I didn't hear the words you said at the beginning. It oh. sounded like straight up gibberish. And I was like, oh, oh, I don't know what she's saying. I might have slurred that. Yeah. I'm not sure. But, but you know what I mean? Like, I could kind of see where they're they're trying to fit in. Yeah. And they they're trying to, I get yeah, that they don't yeah. need it. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know. But at the same time, they have that that need, that urge, that voice. Yeah, yeah. Or in his case, I don't know. I really feel like he thought it was easier to just kill them. That's. I guess what's so funny to me is that so many people are striving to be thought highly of, to be six. Like mm-hmm. that, all those things are what most people are just aiming to do, mm-hmm. and spend a lot of their life to just live those things. And you've got these serial killers and these like charming sociopaths that that's the easy part mm-hmm. that doing all the things that everyone else is striving to do th- all that is like i'm doing all that to do this whole other thing mm-hmm. the dichotomy that it's it's interesting yeah yeah i mean true crime it's fascinating yeah it is yeah well that has been the revolver you guys yeah jackie you Did- listening to anything or reading uh, or watching what am i listening to I'd say since the last time we recorded, I haven't, I don't have new stuff to recommend. Oh, I started watching Mad Men. Oh, how's that? I really like it. Yeah. I'd started years ago and I really, but I think I only got through like the first season and I just got distracted. Yeah. So I was like, oh, let's start over. So I'm like, I'm right now I'm rewatching episodes I've seen, but it's really good. Hmm. I've heard it's really good. I've just never yeah. gone into it. I like it. I'm watching Fargo. Oh, yeah. Under your recommendation, it's on Hulu. And you I'm, had not seen the movie. I've not seen the movie. I'm the watching. It's very good. I'm watching the TV show. It's on Hulu, and it's not what I thought. It's definitely dark murder humor. I just like, like don't know what you thought it was going in. I just thought it was going to be one murder, but it was like wham, 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 wham. It's a There's it's a, a roller coaster of emotions. Um, you guys, cheers! It's been another great week with you guys. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Killer Cocktails. As always, on our talent was Jackie Andrea. Uh, be sure to check out our Instagram at Killer Cocktails Podcast or stop by our website, KillerCocktailsPodcast.com, for up to date information, photos, contests, and more. Our logo was created by Michelle Firm, whose amazing art can be found at MichelleFirmDesign.com. Our music was created by Nikolai Heidlus, and we'll be back next week on hashtag Murder Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> There's like one speck of glitter right there. It's it's keeps catching my eye. There you go. I wonder where that glitter came from. <laughs> <laughs>